Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile AF, the podcast. This is episode 47 called Michael F. So guys, did you know that some reports say that only one in four men have optimal semen quality? Studies from the National Institute of Health have scientifically proven that vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants are directly linked to the success of male sperm. To increase your odds of conception, you need to maximize your sperm quality, and a top-notch male prenatal vitamin will help ensure you're playing with an all-star team. Enter Belly Vitality for Men, my partner on this week's episode. Belly's Vitality provides men with the right nutrients optimized for reproductive and sperm health. Their proprietary Vitality Blend is the first to include an all-natural ingredient called Shilaji, which has been said to improve sperm health, increase sperm count, and help the acid-alkaline balance, which ensures that sperm survive and work properly. Belly's Vitality has some other amazing benefits too, including boosting a man's natural energy and improving cellular health. So if Belly sounds right for you or your partner, you can use the code INFERTILEAF to receive 25% off your first bottle. I'm going to post the exact link to use on my Instagram, which is at infertileafstories, or you can find the link in the notes for this episode. Again, it's Belly's Vitality for Reproductive and Sperm Health. Thanks, Belly. So today's guest is Michael Frank, a brilliant author whose novel, What is Missing?, came out in October and which takes on infertility as one of its central subjects. And the reason Michael knows so much about infertility is that he went through it with his wife. And as he tells me, I found it personally to be one of the hardest things I've ever lived through. As you guys know, my goal is to get as many different perspectives and tell as many different stories on my show. And today I'm honored to add yet another man to my guest list, a man who is willing to share his unique take on he and his wife's story, including three back-to-back miscarriages that left him feeling powerless and quite lonely. Thank you, Michael, for reaching out to me and for so eloquently putting into words how you felt throughout your journey. Without further ado, this is Michael's infertility story. Hi, Michael. How are you today? Fine, thank you. And thank you for having me. Thank you so much for doing this. It's so funny that you reached out to me via email because I had actually seen the article that you wrote for Time about you know going through infertility with your wife and about the novel that you wrote that touches on childlessness and the whole struggle, which we'll talk about a little bit more later too. But it's funny, you contacted me and you, I was like, oh, he was on my list of people I wanted to reach out to. So it was Fates destined have brought us to together. Have it. Exactly. Absolutely. So thank you so much for talking to us today. I love having men on the show because I don't think we get to hear enough about what you guys go through. So if you don't mind, let's just start at the beginning. So yes. tell me about when you guys first got together and did you talk about having kids right away? Did it come up? Sure. So on the ma- male question, maybe starting there and then diving into the, the personal, sure. I think often in the conversation around for t- matters of uh, infertility, for all the obvious reasons, the focus is on women, their bodies, their psyches, their longings. But I think we have to remember two things. One is that men are responsible, or, you know, if that's a kind of a, a loaded verb, but uh, are responsible, we'll say it anyway, for 
I don't have the statistic in front of me, but it's like 30 to 40% of all fertility issues. I think mm-hmm. that's right. And so it, it, it is something happening in also a male body. But the, the truth is it's an experience that you go through both as a couple and individually. And I think that sometimes it gets, these refinements get lost in the conversation. I found it personally to be one of the hardest things that uh, I, I ever lived through. My wife and I had met before we re-met the second time, what we call round two. We were in our late 30s very late 30s. Okay. And naturally at that point in your life unless you're you're practically insensate, you know, you have the idea of a family somewhere on your mind either to talk about not having one or to talk about having one. And mm-hmm. in our case there was no discussion. We both loved children. I was very close as I am still to my nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. I'd spent a lot of time with them and I fully expected to have a family of my own with my wonderful new wife. My wife and I were very clear about wanting to have a family together. And in fact, I was the one who pushed initially and said, I think we need to start trying. I've read quite a bit about what happens, what can happen to older couples. Older is, uh, of course, putting quotation marks for, mm-hmm. but for the purposes of this conversation. As we know, the aging body, the female body, and also the male body is not always such an easy vehicle for pregnancy. The language is still so awkward at times. Anyway. No, I know. We, it's we, geriatric. That's what they say. Geriatric, exactly. Well, listen, it's they're so older messed too. Up. It's it's we you know we haven't we haven't we haven't cracked this particular physiological nut, you know, and the truth is that you're you're maybe ready. The irony is you're ready psychologically, you're ready experientially, you're going to be a better parent because you've had some life under you. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have your babies later, but of course the biology is against. And we didn't enter into the experience with that expectation because fairly soon after we were married, uh, my wife uh, got pregnant. And so we thought, well, we, we're not falling in that statistical gray zone of worry or anxiety or concern mm-hmm. of research, of investigation, of getting checked out. She was pregnant. It went fine. Six weeks later, she, she lost the baby. All right, we read, we learned, we knew that this is typical, this happens, it's nothing to be concerned about. We went about our lives, some time passed, not a great deal of time, actually. And again, she was pregnant, miraculous, Mm -hmm. wonderful, okay, we can stop worrying. Five, six weeks passed, and again, she lost the baby. Now we we were becoming worried, of course. Is it a pattern? Is it just a fluke? And at this point, we uh, we went into a fertility clinic. We got checked out. All the standard tests were run on both of us, and there was nothing identifiable except for her age. And we were told that older women have a higher rate of miscarriage. It's mm-hmm. simply a statistic, you know. And I think to open a small parenthesis here, for all the advances and amazing developments that have happened in the world of infertility and infertility treatment, there's so many things they just don't know, like in, mm-hmm. in a lot of medicine. And right. here they could only say, you're old, but go home and relax. The worst thing to ever be told, of course, in this context. Right. They're like, have a glass of wine and have sex. Exactly. Go away for a romantic weekend. As we right. know, the romance begins to go away oh my God. very quickly as the anxiety about this process increases. In fact, it's right. one of the great 
great challenges, I think, mm -hmm. about this subject and about this experience. She got pregnant a third time. Three times the charm, as I as I phrased it in the Time magazine uh, mm -hmm. piece. And uh, again, she lost the baby. Now we're not only concerned, we were worried. We're two fairly anxious people by nature, and this certainly was not helping. And we went in for treatment because the assumption was that the wrong egg or possibly the wrong sperm, whatever that means, mm -hmm. but in the most layman terms, right. uh, were coming together and not and they, and they were not and they were not developing healthily as they should have. Right. Can I ask you too, just to kind of unpack that a little bit? How did you feel as a guy, as the guy in this situation? I mean, were you sad? Did you feel like it was your fault as the, you know, stereotypical provider, I guess, you know, a lot of men feel they've told me. I think I was more, I think I was more confused than anything, Allison, because there was no explanation. I think if there'd been an explanation, if, you know, I had obviously had my sperm checked, it was healthy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had male friends who have not been able to conceive with their wives who have had issues of uh, motility or morphology. Mine sperm didn't have that. I wonder how I would have felt if I had had these problems. Right. I felt basically powerless. I mean, mm -hmm. the powerlessness characterizes this whole experience. I, we were powerless. Mm -hmm. I was powerless. After the first, the second, and the third miscarriage, honestly, I was quite powerless during the infertility treatment itself. You know, right. we started to do a cycle with the idea that they would use ICSI, which you probably know very well, is mm -hmm. when they take a, a single sperm after they've cleaned and washed the sperm by what method. I never did quite understand. I know, that term washing it. the sperm. I'm I like, know. How do they well, do Well, they that? put it in a centrifuge. This, this, that has, it has been explained to me, but okay. I still can't quite What did they tell the you? Yeah, so how refined it could be that it could take one sperm. That's crazy. And, and as you know, well, they inject it into what looks to them like, of course, that's itself an area of some subjectivity, a healthy egg. Mm -hmm. So and wait, we is ICSI part of IVF or is well, that a it's, separate Yes, thing? it is. It's definitely part of IVF. So okay. it's when they typically in IVF, as I understand it, that they extract after a retrieval, after stimulating the woman's body to produce more eggs than she would normally in a cycle. Mm -hmm. They extract the eggs. They, they select the ones that look normal to them, that look you know viable. And in regular IVF, they simply drop the sperm and let it fertilize in vitro before returning it to the, to the woman's body, before gotcha. transferring it. In the case of ICSI, they actually inject through the cell wall of the, of the egg, the sperm. So they mm -hmm. take it one step further. I think gotcha. the way it was explained to us was that the older the egg, the eggs have more of a they're more of a closed unit. Of course, this is a non-scientist speaking, but that's my image for it. And so it's like you're jumping ahead one step. Right. Okay. They did that with us in our first cycle and she did not get pregnant, my wife. Okay. So now we're looking at four failures, four right. biological failures. And how does um, it feel as the husband seeing your wife going through all terrible. this? It's terrible. First of all, you know, there's just the, and I've written about this, I've thought a lot about this, living with the unknown in life is, I think, one of the most agonizing states of being for, for all of us, whether it's a medical unknown, a professional unknown, 
you could say in a certain a wider sense of political unknown you live in this sense this sense of powerlessness and mm -hmm. ignorance mm -hmm. you cannot see the future and when mm -hmm. you add to that this longing for the thing that you want so desperately which is such a normal thing to yearn for all your friends are having children, your siblings are having children, your own parents were able to have children. You become more and more isolated in your longing, mm -hmm. both as a couple and as individuals in the couple. So I personally felt not only powerless, but quite lonely because yeah. there was almost nobody I could talk to about this experience. Right. That was my kind of follow-up question was, are there guys that you could talk to that have gone through this? Or uh, I, wish you... I, I wish I had. I didn't mm -hmm. find those people. I wasn't someone who went out to look for those people. Mm -hmm. I couldn't speak to my brothers, for example, who had all had, had their children. One of them kept having children while we were you know, struggling to conceive and to hold on to this baby. It puts a real division, a real wall between you and your siblings and your friends. Right. And even, of course, puts a division of sorts between you and your wife, your partner, yeah. because simply because, right? right? It's You're both living this thing so intensely. You can't always help each other through it. Yeah. I think the way that you just described it, the the longing for something coupled with the powerlessness is so such a great I just got like a tears like welled up in my eyes when you said that because I, it just all came flooding back to me. Like it is such a terrible mental place to be in. And, and you, you add, oh, it add all to just that. came flooding back to me. I don't know if, I guess I'm sorry, but no, that is in a way the point of our conversation. Of course. Right? And I don't and, think that ever really fully goes away. Well, I have something to say about that too. Okay. Um, but, but first, I think I just wanted to say that the third thing that happens is that you then have to entrust your body, which is then at the same time also, in a way, your psyche, to complete strangers, right? You're, you're, putting, you're handing yourself over to professionals who right. will have all the best intentions in the world. They still can't really be there for you on the human level because right. it just goes against their, their mission, their job description, right? I mean, it's very difficult, very rare to find a doctor who can be as empathic as you might need him or her to be. Yeah. I have to give process. a shout out to my doctor though, Joshua Klein, who is, was on the podcast in a past episode. And he honestly uh -huh. was, he, he had empathy and I would email him all the time. And he was always like, don't worry, you got this. So he was there. And, but I know that that's the exception to the rule. Most people I talk to don't have that. So they I think are out it's there. Quite rare, you know. I don't yeah. think that's the place to look for that kind of yeah. uh, comfort. I think honestly. I just got lucky. He was yeah, just you did. A great and that's human. great. Yeah. Now I feel like I'm. I'm going to open another parenthesis to to sure. answer something you said earlier, mm -hmm. which is it doesn't. This experience does not go away. It doesn't. You know, if your story mm -hmm. ends happily, and when it does, that's of course fantastic. Mm -hmm. You still live. You have still formed and changed as a human being around this kind of psychological and and physical struggle. And I think that this is a, another one of those less addressed aspects of infertility, the, what I call the infertility journey to kind of mm -hmm. give it a somewhat prettier name, but I, right. you could call it the infertility nightmare with just as much validity. Completely. One of those things, it's one of those experiences like grief, I think, that uh, profoundly changes you as a human being. Mm -hmm. And even though it may end well, you have still lived a year, two years. I know people who have been doing it for five years. Mm -hmm. You have lived for this much time with this much unhappiness, this much struggle, right. this much anxiety, 
this much conflict between you and your partner, this much longing that is mm-hmm. shared and that is individual, these things do not go away. Yeah. And I, I kind of actually stupidly thought that they might have for me. And then I found myself in support of this novel of mine, What is Missing, which takes on infertility as one of its central subjects, mm-hmm. reaching out to people to talk about the novel. And it's funny how, as I began to read accounts of other people who had gone through, more correctly, were going through infertility struggles, I could feel that exact same anxiety, that same pit in my stomach yeah. return Instantly. Yeah. This is 14 years ago we're talking about. Right. So you know? when, how long, I, I want to get back to the chronology of your story and your, with sure. your wife, but how long after it had ended, and I don't want to give away what happened to you guys, but hmm. did you start the novel? Was it years later? So I lived, as I was living this experience, I did what I typically do when I go through something that's difficult, which is I paid attention. Okay. It's, I find it my way of I suppose, somewhat distancing myself from uh, suffering and unhappiness, but also, of course, coping with it because Mm -hmm. it gave me something simply to do. Mm -hmm. Those many visits to those waiting rooms, those long hours waiting for procedures, those long hours waiting to recover from procedures, those long hours waiting for test results, phone calls, developments, so you're those writing, long, are you writing those long down? sleepless hours? I'm writing it all down. Yeah. I wrote it down in my diary. I kept notebooks. I kept papers. I thought to myself, this is a theater of experience that has not been, as far as I have, was able to tell and have been able to tell since, has not been appropriately mined has not been appropriately expressed in what I would call literary fiction in Mm -hmm. in a serious novel. And I kept notes. I thought a lot about how I wanted to tell this story. There have been wonderful books that are first-person accounts, that are memoirs, that are books that can offer a great deal of information and comfort. But but very few people, almost no one I've come across, has reimagined it into a story. Mm -hmm. And that's how I write best. And so I... I invented a novel. Okay. So did you know at the time that it was going to become a novel or were you just like... Absolutely. I I knew I didn't want to tell our own story. I don't even want like telling it now, though I am. I'm telling you. I'm telling it to you. And I have written about it, as you know, in in some pieces and I'm working on another one. we appreciate it. But no, I I thought it was better to inhabit people who were a little bit removed from us. Yeah. Because we, you know, we go through it in our own particular way, and it's not because it was so private. It's simply that it was so idiosyncratic to, to my wife and me. Mm-hmm. And so I came up with someone who was also idiosyncratic, and a very individual woman as the centerpiece of the novel, who is mm-hmm. a half American and half Italian translator, mm-hmm. who had been married to an older, accomplished American novelist, and had tried to conceive a child with him and had failed. And who had not been able to convince him to seek treatment, which I think is a dynamic that often plays out between couples, that the very idea of going outside for help yep. is not is not viable f- always for both people. Usually, I'm That's sorry what to say to my husband and me. Yeah, there you go, right. 
very hard thing to get your brain around that you're going to have like a third party in your intimate life, but you yeah. stop thinking of it. You have to stop thinking of it as your intimate life. That's the first right. step. The you intimacy know, goes out the window. It goes way, way out the window. And yeah. Yeah. Way. Right. So I, I felt it was important to have someone like that in, in some experience like that wired in knit into, let's say her past. But as the novel opens, she meets first a young man who's a 17-year-old photographer called Andrew Weissman. They meet in this pensione in Florence. And then she meets his father. Mm -hmm. And his father, who is divorced, who is not the most handsome, but is, who is a very charismatic man, is himself a physician who specializes in reproductive medicine. Mm. She is not even quite aware of what she's doing, which is one of the things that is missing in this novel called What is Missing? Right. I was just going to say the title is What is Missing? Exactly. It's, well, of course, there is this missing baby that she eventually feels a great longing for once again in her life. But there are also, there's some missing self-awareness on Costanza's part in which mm -hmm. she takes her a little time to figure out that maybe one of the reasons she's so compelled by this man is that he brings babies into being, right? right. But there are other things, other people missing. There's her father who died as a suicide. There is Henry's father's family who were perished in the Holocaust. There are the missing connections between fathers and sons, between brothers, between mothers and daughters. Mm -hmm. I was very interested in exploring in all of its reverberations as best I could, this idea of absence, because absence is something that is oddly, and this will sound almost like an oxymoron, but absence is something that is very present in all of our lives. Mm. It is, again, that thing that we're longing for, that thing that we're yearning for. Once again, that struggle of living with the unknown. And of course, it crystallizes in its most sharp and acute, its most disturbing form in the longing for a baby that you can't conceive. Right. So this became the story I wanted to tell. Henry and Costanza fall in love. Mm -hmm. They move in together. And the question comes up, just as it did between my wife and me, just as I imagine it did between you and your husband, just as it does between thousands millions of couples. Should we have a child together? Mm -hmm. Henry wants to have another child. Costanza wants to have her first child. And so they embark on not one, but as it turns out, two cycles of IVF. Mm -hmm. But this being a novel and a fairly, uh, I like to think, dramatic novel, there are many other themes that are woven into the story. And right they concern very centrally the truth about people's pasts. Mm -hmm. And everyone in the book is also one way or another missing some information. Either they're not revealing it to themselves, they're not revealing it to their partners, or they don't know what it is they don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think that yet again, I was hoping to explore from yet, you know, from one more perspective, absence and what absence can do to drive us through our lives and of course the story builds and builds i hope fairly dramatically as people right, have thought suspense. it does yeah i was reading right. some of the reviews i haven't read the novel yet i'll be honest but i'm going to after this conversation it came out in october right it just came out uh, on audible so it's a wonderful audiobook do you read it no, I don't read it. Okay. Uh, a, a wonderful actress called Tara Langella does. Oh, cool. Um, I'm, I'm so excited that it's, it's in the world now. What's the response been to you personally? Oh, I, you know, it's really been interesting. People 
this book follows fairly closely on a memoir I published called The Mighty Franks about right. my family two years ago. Yeah. And in that book, I, I centrally told the story of my larger-than-life aunt, who was a glamorous, accomplished screenwriter who dominated our family. And mm-hmm. it's the short version. And had no children of her own, interestingly, and, and borrowed, or in some versions, depending on how you see it, tried to steal me from my parents. Wow. And when I traveled with this book, with that book, I I met so many people who came up to me and said, you captured my aunt, you captured my grandmother, you captured my boss, you captured my sister, you captured my wife, you captured my husband, even though it's a woman, you know, you got to the essence of what it's like to live in a family or professional context or social context with a very dominating, formidable human being. You're right. This time... I'm getting something similar, which is people are coming up to me and saying, either we went through IVF and it was a devastating experience and it is really rare to read about this in a novel, Mm -hmm. or they're saying, this happened to my friends, to Mm -hmm. my family. I didn't know what they were going through. Or they're saying, we had our children with ease, but we understand so much more now about how fortunate we are or what, what paths what forks in the road we didn't take right. from reading this book. So yeah. it's uh, so great. It's an, it's, it's a, that it is the most rewarding thing I have to say. And I think it's, as someone said to me the other day, actually a, a producer person who is looking at it as a, as a potential movie. Ooh, um, yeah. This is, uh, which would be fantastic. This is, you know, one of these topics that is just not discussed. Right. And and that brings us back to our whole conversation, which, yeah. I, which is why I think podcasts like yours are so important. And conversations like the ones that you're inspiring people to have are, are so critical because it Thank is you. such a lonely experience. Uh, yeah, uh, I agree. And we were saying before we started recording that you and I both, you know, you went through this 14 years ago. Yeah, Vince and I were going through this, you know, seven plus years yeah. ago, and we just wanted, we felt lonely. We just wanted to connect. So yes, that's the reason that I created this. That's probably part, you know, most of the reason you wrote your novel. I mean, it's, I I just think it's so good to get these stories out there, obviously. You know, not everyone who is uh, going through the acute phase of IVF necessarily wants to find their story reflected back at them in the actual moment, but just before, just afterward, in a certain time of day, at a certain time of night, I think it's not a bad thing to know that there's someone out there who has a, a small understanding of what you live through. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, it was definitely one of the reasons I wrote this book, but it was also very personally mm-hmm. to find a way to do something with what I had lived through. Right. You know, what we had lived through. Right. So can we go back to your story? So you guys sure. had done the ICSI. That didn't we, the, work, the second right? in vitro, the second cycle of in vitro, uh, I'll never forget. We had a very, I would say, a very comforting relationship with one of the nurses in mm-hmm. uh, in our clinic, and she left a message saying, "This one is looking good." And when she left that message, I knew that this woman, with the experience that she's had, doesn't call and leave that kind of information on people's in those days answering machines right. so casually. Yeah. Oh my and, God! And remember that, answering machines? Yeah, <laughs> I still have one. Of we course. would. My sister and I would spend hours like coming up with the perfect like message for when of someone course. called. Yeah. Of course, <laughs> of so course. Funny. Yeah, that was the first glimmer of I have to say of uh, genuine hope that we felt in three 
nearly three years of okay. uh, of this journey. And she was right. Uh, this pregnancy stuck and uh, it took and it developed. And in July of 2005, my wife gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. Uh, yay. Amazing. Yeah. It's, it had a happy ending. And, you right. know, I, I, I don't always like to tell the ending because <laughs> I, I, as I said to you before we started recording, I think it's important for people to know that it really is the middle of the experience right. that is the one that we all, where we all need the most understanding. Absolutely. Know? Right. And, you know, I think it's some of the things that, you know, you just said were, are so interesting. Like what, what did the nurse, did you ask her, like, what did she see that she was able to say? She saw that the cells were uh, multiplying, dividing, okay. multiplying. So things were looking it, good, like on the it, right track. Yes, they were looking good. But, you know, we also, by that point, we'd become so cautious. Right. We had learned to tighten ourselves against bad news, mm-hmm. you know, to, to stiffen ourselves against disappointment that right. we couldn't. And I think with great, with great, you know, it was quite reasonable, really. We couldn't allow ourselves to feel relieved basically until the baby was born. Yeah. I was just honestly. talking to another guest, Sarah, about that. Uh-huh. And she's pregnant now, five months along after two miscarriages. And she was saying, it's still hard to fully relax. And you know, we were talking about how even, I feel like even after you have the baby, you still can't relax. You know, can you oh ever fully God, relax no. as a parent? I mean, never, right? No, I, I used to have visions of this child falling out the window oh of every God. possible horrible thing happening. Absolutely. You, your mind goes very black, you know, and I think maybe all parents, all, all custodians of small creatures, custodians. I think probably <laughs> as I think of them, because I, you know, I think we're really just taking care of them temporarily. I deeply feel that. But you are the custodian, the caregiver of this little being. You're its parent for sure, but right. you're also like physically responsible. It, you're, it is so vulnerable. You are so vulnerable. And I think you can have ideas about how that can go wrong, you know, 24 7. Really. If you just turn on the news, it's like, yeah, well, you hear these stories, you know. It's, yeah, I yeah. will read one ounce of anything, which of course one does Absolutely. with great caution. You can be living with this amazing being, your child, Mm -hmm. but you can also be living with the fear of not having this child. It's very strange. That something's going to happen to them. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's a mixture of something going to happen to them and and then almost like some kind of odd magical thinking that that she doesn't really exist, Mm -hmm. you know, because because you were conditioned for so long to prepare yourself against uh, prepare yourself for the possibility of her not existing that her the fact that she does exist seems almost surreal at times right right you know i don't know if you feel that way or maybe that's just something in the no, oddness of my own brain but uh, yeah i do feel that way and every single day i say to my son i still can't believe you're here yeah and he's 4 and he looks yeah. at me and he's like i don't know what you're t- saying and no. one of these days he's going to be like what are you talking about Right. Like he just kind of goes with it now, but I'm going to have to explain it to him soon. Well, and I think like, when, no, you do, when, you, when you do explain it to him, you'll be passing on some insight about the fragility and mystery of life to him. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, as I think you and I probably both know, until you've lived this yourself or become very close to someone who has lived it himself or herself, you're not entirely going to understand. You know, it, right. it's, it's simply not one of those experiences that you can convey to someone who isn't 
that sort of person. And that sort of person, to my mind, means someone who is very attuned to the fragility of life or someone who has been ill or someone who has grieved deeply, because I find those are the those are the points, the dots that, that once they're connected in life, they make you a fairly compassionate person who can understand something like infertility without having lived it. Right. You know, it really does take a certain openness to human human vulnerability. Right. Really. Yeah. I do want to talk about another thing that you wrote about, which I think was so important for you to say, and I think that. If anybody who's listening, who's going through, you know, the struggle in the midst of it right now, it might help. And the same thing kind of happened to me too when I was going through therapy. So I'll just, I'm going to read something that was part of your article, if that's okay. Sure, of course. I thought that it was so like well said. So you're talking about the whole theme of the article that you wrote is about waiting, right? And how that's such a difficult place to be in waiting for something. And you said, another lesson I learned from Buddhism came later as I was listening to a frequent refrain of Pima Chodron. Is that how you say it? Pema Chodron. Pema Pema Chodron's. Pema, yeah. Okay. Pema Chodron's let go of the story. All of a sudden, I heard the suggestion in a new way, or maybe I really heard it for the first time. So that phrase, let go of the story, it was the same thing that a therapist of mine said was like, you have to let go of the way that you thought your life was going to go in order to move on. No kidding. And it it really was like a huge moment for me in my journey that I was like, oh yeah, it doesn't always work out how you want it to. And if you can kind of acknowledge that and, and let go of the plan that you had in place, it just helps in a, in a way. So is that kind of what you meant? Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you tell Uh, me a little bit more? I can, of course. I, it's not just because I'm a writer, I don't think, because like, I know a lot of other human beings who do this, but I think we all get up in the morning and start narrating our lives. Mm-hmm. It's something as simple as I'm going to make coffee, I'm going to put the laundry in the washing machine, I'm going to <laughs> you know, make breakfast, I'm going to read the paper, I'm going to write you know, a genius short story, I'm going to make a million dollars, I'm going to bed, good night. You know, some version of that is going through everybody's head. You enlarge it just a bit, I'm going to have sex, I'm going to get pregnant, I'm going to give birth to twins. I'm going to live in this wonderfully lively, crazy, chaotic house. Mm -hmm. You know, it just doesn't, this is all language. This is all smoke, right? This is nothing tangible. When you start telling yourself these stories, you start creating expectations that your life is going to follow them. Mm -hmm. And the the obverse of that, your life is going to be a disappointment to you if it doesn't follow them. Right. Worse than that, particularly when it comes to having children, because who cares about the rest in this in this kind of conversation? Mm-hmm. You're going to be devastated if you fail. How is that going to help you live through one of the most challenging experiences if you're of your life? If you set yourself up with this story every day, which is like this enormous weight in a sense that you have to carry with you wherever you go. Don't forget those years, in my case, almost our case, three years that we put into infertility, mm-hmm. we were, had to be living our lives. Right. It's like context. life doesn't stop. You're not in a funnel. and a, You're a not. Bubble. It doesn't stop. And, and the fact that you narrow it down to that degree makes you, can I just say, crazy mm-hmm. because it, it makes you even more hyped up, even more anxious. 
even more closed. And who knows what that does? I mean, I'm not, I don't believe necessarily in these sort of mind-body interactions, but, but who knows what that does to you on every level of your, of oh, your I believe existence. In that. You know, I don't know where I stand, quite honestly. I'm sure there's something to it for some people. I just don't know if you can generalize because then, you know, you end up with the, with those prescriptives that we talked about before, where people say to you, oh, just go away for the weekend or have a glass of wine and you'll have your babies. Right. I think it's more complicated than that, but I do definitely think there's a mind body connection. There doubtless for a lot of people there are, but not necessarily for everyone, but surely, surely to give yourself this added burden of the story. Right. And that transfers, translates to to context far beyond simply infertility. It's, it's, once you learn that you're doing that, you can stop yourself because I think it makes you a much more present human being who's responding to what actually is coming at you in life, you know, who's responding to the other things, the other themes, both positive and negative in their own terms. Mm-hmm. You know, so seeing the world clearly and seeing it without this burden of the story is one of the hardest things, as you know, to train yourself to do. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm, it's also, ironically, one of the only ways you can find comf- some degree of comfort in, when you go through this, particularly the infertility journey, because you walk into that office and the story is so clearly laid out because it's, it's basically, it's put on a piece of paper for you. Here's a printout. This is what you're going to do. This is what we hope will happen. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't automatically happen. Come on. Right. Right, and if you go in there with every, thinking that every single injection, every single appointment, every test, every drug is going to assure you that the story will play out the way you want to, that's just not about being a responsible or reasonable human being, mm-hmm. and you're only going to set yourself up for more more pain and unhappiness. Right, I just love that. Let go of the story. It's it's one of her great precepts, and I cannot hear it often enough. You yeah. know, she's. She understands that that's what our minds do. And they do. If you just watch yourself all day long, you're telling yourself how your life is going to go. That's mm-hmm. all a fabrication. Mm-hmm. It's just incredible. Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to the way your body is going to function. The body has its own, I'm not saying it has its own fixed path. Of course not, because we look how miraculous infertility treatment is. It, it, it throws that path into all kinds of wrenches and to that path. It opens up all kinds of possibilities in that path, but you can never be assured that it's going to happen. It's a very basic precept of Buddhism. Yes. Yeah. You know, it goes with the other thing that is often it, it said in these talks, which is, you know, you shouldn't cling to, mm-hmm. become attached to either the positive experiences that are taking you up or the negative ones that are pulling you down. You have to travel more neutrally, move more neutrally through time and space because you get set up for all of these. You have a wonderfully positive experience, but the negative, and that makes you happy, but should the negative one make you unhappy? Right. How do you find your way, the more middle path, the more middle ground, that more neutral way of moving through time and space, certainly when applied to the, experience of infertility will make it a much more livable process. Hey again, guys, thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Michael. And thank you to Michael for sharing all that he did with us today. There's a couple of things that he said that I just can't shake. And I thought they were so great. One of them was when he said, 
Living with the unknown in life is one of the most agonizing states of being for all of us. And I think that everybody can relate to that on some level. And then I love the thing he said about Pima Chodron and her refrain of let go of the story. I think we all could also use to do that every once in a while. And if you're stuck or having a hard time, just remember what she said, let go of the story. So on that note, thanks again for listening and I will talk to you guys next time.